0: Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforests.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley. That this summer is stressing the importance of being a good steward on the trail, finding ways to avoid contributing to crowding, and staying safe on public lands. We'll talk about how just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages everyone to come out and experience the state parks during its centennial, the 100th anniversary of the state park system, especially through service projects listed online at stateparks.oregon.gov. It's a way to enjoy the parks while doing activities like cleaning up trails and restoring watersheds. All right, today we have a special episode where we are going to go back through our catalog of more than 70 episodes to pick out a handful of our favorite stories. We'll talk about the time the town of Lincoln City got in a fight with a fifth grade class from Montana. We'll explain how a naked mountain man got his name on so many Oregon destinations, and we'll tell the tale of a daredevil who launched his canoe off a 177-foot waterfall at what is now Silver Falls State Park. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, today we have a different kind of episode, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So ever since we started this podcast, we've stayed true to the idea of highlighting Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. Now, most listeners have tuned in for the travel and recreation side, where we focus on where to go, what to do, and how to make it happen in Oregon's outdoors. But I've always taken the interesting side equally seriously. And I think we've always tried to pepper the podcast with fun stories that involve history, news, or just quirky stuff that I picked up over the years. This podcast is in its sixth year now, and that honestly blows my mind. We recorded our first episode back in 2017, when the world was a very different place, and in the beginning, barely anybody listened. We've grown a lot over the years, and it stands to reason that some of our newer listeners probably miss some of the fun stories from the early days. For example, we broke down the saga of when the coastal town of Lincoln City got into a fight with a fifth grade class from Montana over who had the world's shortest river. And maybe you didn't hear how Cape Kiwanda, one of Oregon's most famous beaches and parks, was almost the site of a nuclear power plant. Or how a fight between a disabled snowmobiler and one of Oregon's most famous politicians created the state's snow park system. Anyway, I could go on and on, but instead, I'm gonna pick a dozen or so of my favorite stories from our back catalog and just put them here. The stories I picked tend to veer on the fun side. We've got ghost wagons, naked mountain men, and a princess turned to stone. In fact, I found so many stories while going back that I split them up into two episodes. So consider this volume one of our favorite fun stories and keep an eye out for volume two, which will be published in the next few days. We'll be back with more traditional episodes soon, so consider this a fun little detour of weird and wild and interesting tales from Oregon's Outdoors. Before we get going, I have to shout out my former producer and co-host, David Davis, who has moved on to a different job, but whose voice you'll hear a lot in these old stories. David's presence is missed in so many ways, but there's no better way to honor his contribution than telling some of these old tales. So without further ado, I'd just like to say thanks for listening, and I hope you can get a laugh or two from this little side project of a podcast. (music) Okay, well, let's get rolling. So I've already teased it a few times, but we're going to start with Lincoln City's unusual feud with the fifth grade class from Montana. And yes, it does get pretty silly.
1: Okay, welcome back. In the second part of the podcast, we're going to focus on the two most beautiful spots in Lincoln City. But first, we're going to go ahead and talk about the showdown between Lincoln City and yes, a fifth grade class from Montana.
0: <laughs> so this is a ridiculous story. And it's kind of hard to believe that it's true. And I told my buddy who works at uh, Lincoln City's tourism department that we might talk about this. And I could really hear him through the phone, just roll his eyes and be like, why would you make us relive this? Like, why would you do that? But got to do it because it's just a fun story. And so when you head into Lincoln City, so here's the story. You head into Lincoln City and you come to the D River right in the middle of town. It's a very short river and the city says in a little sign that it is the world's shortest river. And that's where our story begins, because there is grave dispute about that claim.
1: For a long time, all was well. The Guinness Book of World Records listed the D River as the world's shortest river at just 440 feet. But the trouble started in 1987, when Guinness revoked the title and awarded it to the Roe River in Montana. Here's what happened. A fifth grade class in Great Falls noticed they had an unnamed stream right in their backyard, They measured it as being just 201 feet long. So, being precocious little grade schoolers, they petitioned the government to officially name the stream the Roe River. They then submitted it to Guinness, and it worked. In the 1987 edition, D-River was out, and Roe was the new champion. That's when things got a little ugly.
0: Yeah, so before I go into what happens next, let's take a minute to talk about this is an important tourism thing. I mean, Lincoln City this is, they can put this on postcards and say, home to the world's shortest river. So they view it as, you know, a way to bring people in. You know, they come in, they want to see the world's shortest river and, you know, while they're there, we'll stop and hang out at your beach. We'll buy lunch at one of your businesses. You know, it's a real thing.
1: I feel like a lot of coastal towns like to have that kind of quirky fact. And if you have a world's only right in your own backyard, you're going to shout that.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So keep that in mind when you, you hear what happens next. So, Lincoln City loses this title, and instead of just taking the high road saying, hey, congrats, fifth graders, they <laughs> took the opposite approach. The, city of, the city's chamber of commerce, they, they fired a shot at the fifth grade class saying, the Roe River was little more than a drainage ditch surveyed for a school project. Basically, they said the river was not legit. And so they tried to win the title back, and so they re-measured the D-River at high tide. Now remember, the river drains into the ocean. So at super high tide, the ocean kind of swallows up more of the river. And so when they remeasured it like that, they got 120 feet. And Lincoln City claims victory once again. The fifth grade classes teacher, Mrs. Nardinger, is not amused. First of all, she's like, why aren't you behaving like real adults? And second, she points out that the D-River is little more than an ocean water backup and also not fit to be called a real river. At this point, the people at Guinness kind of threw up their hands and walked away, basically saying, if you guys can't get along, then nobody gets the record.
1: Yeah, when I was looking at the newspaper archives, there was a quote in there from the Lincoln City Chamber of Commerce manager. He said, the only thing worse than being in a battle with fifth graders is losing to a bunch of fifth graders.
0: Yeah, actually, to get an update on this, because I was curious, I talked to the people at Guinness Book of World Records. Yes, it still exists. And they said, basically, nobody holds the current title. And if somebody wants to claim it, you know, they're open to it. But it has to come from an official third party organization or renowned expert, meaning they don't want to listen to people arguing with fifth graders about what constitutes a real river. And I guess my question, my final question here for you is, should Lincoln City try to win it back? Like, is there value there?
1: I think almost they just sort of pretended it never left. It's just The shortest river in their hearts, and that's how it's going to be.
0: I think that's probably the way to go through. The sign's still there. So for all anybody knows driving through town, it is still the world's shortest river.
1: According to Lincoln City. According to
0: Lincoln City. Okay, up next, let's talk about the namesake for what might be my favorite river in Oregon, the John Day. I actually just got back from my annual rafting, fishing, and camping trip in the canyon lands of the John Day, and it is a glorious river. But the name always seemed odd. And frankly, the actual story is pretty odd.
1: All right, welcome back. In the second half of the podcast, we're gonna talk about what a day is like on the John Day. But first, let's start as we often do with a look back at John Day himself. More than just about anyone in this area of the state, this guy's name is everywhere. John Day is the name of a city, a river, national monument, a dam, even a geologic rock formation. (laughs) It's everywhere. But who is John Day and what did he do to deserve having his name plastered all over everything?
0: Yeah. So John Day is one of those legendary mountain men where it's really hard to separate the reality from myth. I've read a bunch of different accounts And they're all sort of similar on the same basic things uh, with a few details changed here and there. So we're drawing from a bunch of different sources in retelling this tale.
1: All right. So John Day was a hunter from the backwoods of Virginia, born around 1770. Apparently he was very tall and pretty strapping, six feet, two inches which was, you know, taller than most in those days. Not much is known about his early life, but apparently he lived life in the fast lane, <laughs> what the fast lane was back in the 1770s, who knows. But here's a quote from one write-up. It was his boast that in his younger days, nothing could hurt or daunt him, but he had lived too fast and injured his constitution by excesses.
0: We don't say constitution nearly enough no. these days. No, um, I feel like my constitution's pretty strong.
1: Depends on the day.
0: Yeah, that's true. So even so, when he joined a fur company party that was headed on an overland expedition to Astoria. So this is how he was described by the writer Washington Irvin in 1838. He was tall and handsome with an open manly countenance. And he was a prime woodsman and an almost unerring shot with an elastic step as if he trod on springs.
1: Yeah, he really kind of sounded like a good guy to have along with your exploration party. But on an expedition west in 1811, he became sick and the entire party left him behind, except for Ramsey Crooks, near present-day Wiser, Idaho. The next spring, Crooks and Day traveled across the Blue Mountains to the Columbia River when everything pretty much went wrong.
0: Indeed, as they right at the mouth of what was then apparently called the Mau Mau River, although I've seen other descriptions of what it might have been called in the early days. Anyway, they come to where this river flows into the Columbia and Day and Crooks are attacked by Native Americans. Now, it appears likely that they were targeted for retribution from an attack on the tribe by a previous trading party. Either way, Day and Crooks weren't killed, but they were robbed of all their belongings and stripped of all their clothes. And they had to walk something like 80 miles, buck naked, through some pretty challenging terrain until they were finally rescued.
1: John Day had a pretty eventful rest of his life. Depending on the account, he may or may not have gone mad for a few years before eventually trapping for a time in the Willamette Valley and then dying around 1820 in the Snake River Canyon region.
0: Yeah, but as we said, his name definitely lived on. The, The site where Day was robbed and stripped naked, I think just because it was such a wild story, became known as John Day's River. And as often happens, the name stuck, even though the man himself never explored the river that now bears his name. And it's funny, people have drawn different conclusions from this guy's history. It's kind of all over the place. So, for example, like in the history of the city of John Day, they write, Even though history does not record it, John Day must have been an outstanding man. Wherever he went, a creek, valley, or river was named after him. Now, I'm going to go on a limb. That feels like kind of a stretch. (laughs) Feels like you're kind of trying to justify the name of your town a little bit there. And another conclusion, this one coming from the more even handed Oregon Encyclopedia says do more to the resources in the John Day River watershed than any accomplishments of the man himself, John Day is indelibly linked to Oregon through place names.
1: Wow. Bucket of cold water. Yeah, Just they
0: they, in it. they come at him pretty hard, which uh, that's a bold move by the Oregon Encyclopedia.
1: Just happened to be there.
0: So I have to say that what happened with John Day isn't that unusual. You see this all over Oregon, but once a person gets associated with an area from back in the 1800s, especially their name tends to end up everywhere around it. So take an example from just outside Salem. Back in the 1800s, there was a miner and pioneer that made a homestead in the little North Santium Canyon. And he went by the name Henline. Now today there is a Henline Creek, a Henline Falls, and a Henline Mountain, all honoring this random dude who never did anything special enough to get all the stuff named after him. But with mapping, once something sticks, it kind of sticks. Speaking of which, up next, we are going to have the first of two stories about the namesakes of Oregon cities and towns. Now, this one would seem pretty straight ahead. Grant's Pass. It's pretty clearly named for the great Civil War general, and that is true. But my goodness, there is... So much more to the story, including, believe it or not, murder and betrayal. No, really.
1: Speaking of which, we've got two stories about the original name. Which one do you want to start with?
0: So let's go in chronological order here. So the first name, the original name of the town, this town along the Rogue River was not Grant's Pass. It was originally called Perkinsville, and that's beginning in 1851. The name came from Joel Perkins, who arrived a few years earlier and established the first ferry crossing of the Rogue River. He also built up a little general store, had a little settlement there, and that was kind of the basis for the original town.
1: Yeah, the ferry business was booming because settlers from the Willamette Valley were pouring into the Rogue Valley in search of, yes, the hot item at the time, gold. The gold rush in southern Oregon didn't really reach the California levels of fervor and intensity, but it did change the area. So why didn't Perkinsville stick?
0: Yeah, so this gets into one of the more lurid tales of the 1800s. I almost hesitate to bring it up on this, you know, family podcast. (laughs) But basically, Perkins had married a 15-year-old woman named Laura Hahn years earlier. And apparently, uh, you know, in, in in the course of their marriage, she had an affair with one of the hired hands, a guy named John Malone. The two of them hatched a plan to... Well, let's just put it this way. One day Malone and Perkins went out and only Malone came back. When people asked him what happened, he was basically like, oh, Joel, haven't seen him. Is, is he missing? And then he did the thing lots of people did back then and blamed Native Americans for probably killing him. Uh, Hahn and Malone attempted to take off but were caught by authorities and Malone eventually confessed to murder. So the idea of Perkinsville sort of lost some steam after that incident.
1: The town itself was growing and needed a name. For inspiration, they turned to a man who had never visited the area, but was having some pretty good successes at the time in the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant.
0: We've talked about this before, but the lack of imagination from Oregon pioneers, pretty impressive. I mean, they loved to name waterfalls Niagara. They loved to name every dramatic spot on the Oregon coast after the Devil,
1: All five haystack rocks. Uh,
0: (laughs) And they seem to delight in naming mountains and rivers for guys that never actually explored the area, whether we're talking about Hood or Jefferson or John Day. So Grant fits kind of nicely into this tradition. Anyway, the story is pretty straightforward. After the Perkinsville incident, uh, some pioneers applied for a post office name in 1864, so this is just one year after Grant's critical victory in the Civil War at Vicksburg. So the town was named in celebration of that Union victory.
1: So where did the pass part come from?
0: Right. So in a few reasons, um, they couldn't just call it Grant because there was already a Grant County in Oregon. And Grant's victory, that just sounds a little weird, I guess, for, for a town. And I guess they were working on a road while they were thinking about this name near current uh, Interstate 5. The road seemed to go over a small pass, and so somebody looked back and said, hey, it's Grant's Pass, and that name stuck.
1: So not quite as scandalous as the story about Perkinsville, but I guess it'll do. So Ulysses never made it out to the town the Boar's name, right?
0: If he did, it has not been recorded by history, but there is this nugget. Grant apparently served as captain at Fort Humble in Eureka, California in the 1850s, and apparently he did not enjoy himself at all. According to one account, Grant found the consistent rain and isolation unbearable and was said to have developed quite a thirst for whiskey during his time at that fort.
1: Don't we all at points during the Pacific Northwest winters?
0: But the thing is, Grant would have liked Grant's Pass a lot more due to its famous weather. There's actually a sign strung across downtown Grant's Pass that declares, It's the climate! And that sign doesn't lie. The weather is fantastic down there. It is demonstrably sunnier and warmer than the Willamette Valley. It also has all four seasons. The weather's great. And so, if Grant had been stationed in Perkinsville, he might have been a much happier dude. So I didn't include it in the story that you just heard, but you, if you listen to the entire podcast about Grants Pass, uh, where I actually lived for five years, you'd learn that the town is the birthplace of the now ubiquitous Dutch Bros Coffee. And its founder, Travis Borsma, has put so much money into the town lately that people have started jokingly calling it Travis Pass. So who knows? We could have another curveball in this tale of the the name of Grants Pass down the road. Anyway, Up next, let's get a little bit more modern, and it's about one of the most popular, deadly, and confounding places on the Oregon coast. So, Cape Kiwanda at Pacific City has at various times been the most deadly place on the coast, become a hotbed destination for wedding photography, and has been proposed for a nuclear power plant. So I summed it all up in in sort of a long stream of consciousness uh, ramble here. So take what you will from it. Oh, man. All right. So for my third pick, (laughs) I'm not sure if this is this might be a mistake or not, but I am going to dive into one of the most beautiful and troubled places in all of Oregon. Like this place could be its own podcast and maybe one day we'll do it. But the pick is Cape Kiwanda, the original Instagram famous spot on the coast that has been the site of so much news over the past five years. I've written about a war and peace length number of words about it. (laughs) But before we get into kind of the wildness and all the news that's happened out there, let's start with the good stuff. So Cape Koanda's extremely beautiful spot nestled in Pacific City. You walk down past the Pelican Brew Pub, bam, and you know, Haystack Rock is right there, rising in all of its glory. Then you can climb up a trail along uh, to, to the top of a dune and get some really amazing panoramic views up and down the coast. And then you can see part, a lot of Cape Kiwanda itself. This area has become super famous for photographers, and it's easy to see why. The Cape is actually made up of sandstone that is gradually being destroyed by the ocean, and it creates these really dramatic, irregular cliffs and features that's right on top of the ocean. It's just unique. It's unlike any other place. It's so scenic that Oregon has been using it in tourism brochures going back to the 1920s. So, you know, there's a lot to love about this area. But the backstory, I mean wow um so the way i'm gonna do this is just like four crazy things to know about cape Koanda. so i'm gonna take a deep breath you guys are you guys ready yeah. for this
1: <laughs> go for it
0: all right our first crazy thing is in the late 1960s and early 1970s cape Koanda was the proposed site of a nuclear power plant like uh, they were gonna put a nuke there and I found old reports detailing these plans about that site, and I talked to a former Oregon Parks manager, like one of the old timers about it, and he was like, yeah, it's unclear how far the plans got, but it was Portland General Electric had the option to do it. They had created plans, and back then, there was barely anything out of Pacific City, so it's not as crazy as it sounds. There was just nothing there, and so they were like, hey, let's put a nuclear reactor out here. But once news spread around about that, people were obviously you know, outraged and said, no, we don't want that. And that's what led to it becoming a state park, which brings me to the next point. Why wasn't it a state park before? Well, Oregon state park system was not at all excited about making Cape Kiwanda part of the system. And the reason was that the Cape has been a death trap for more than a century. I wrote about a recent spate of deaths at Cape Kiwanda, really tragic in the mid 2010s, but look, the unstable sandstone cliffs there and the bulls, they have been killing people for a long time. There's often been a fence trying to block people away from it, but they tend to just go over it. And at least 18 people have died there from 1960 to 2016. The real number is probably much higher, closer to 25 or 30. It's one of the deadliest places in Oregon, bar none. And that includes recently when social media especially Instagram lured just huge amounts of crowds out onto this incredibly dangerous place. And it just had really tragic results there for a couple years. All right. So that leads to kind of the final piece of this saga. And I just can't talk about Cape Kiwanda without mentioning this. So we talked about that unique geology, the sandstone that's being slowly destroyed and eroded. And that leads to some, really amazing rock formations, the most famous of which was a stone hoodoo called either the duckbill rock or the pedestal or just the rock. It was basically this natural pedestal that rose from the sandstone, and it became wildly popular to take like engagement photos or just to pose on top of because, you know, the ocean spread out behind you. It was just really a beautiful, unique spot. The problem is that it was luring people into this very dangerous area. And you know, apparently something happened. And at one point, this group of, of guys and they were caught on camera, went out and destroyed this famous rock formation. And that sparked worldwide outrage. Like, I'm not kidding. The story went to like Europe and Japan. It went viral all over the world. It launched an investigation uh, for the state police to find out who was responsible, which never amounted to much, by the way. And so the rock was just gone. And maybe the wildest part of all of this is that a few years after it happened, Cape Kiwanda has become a much safer place. Like they added a ranger to patrol the fence and try to keep people out of the dangerous areas. They outlawed driving on the beach just pretty recently, but Oregon officials also told me that the death of the duck bill has made this area for lack of a better word, safer, which is a bananas thing to think yeah. about. There have been zero, there have been zero deaths, far fewer rescues where they used to happen all the time. And here's what an Oregon official told me. So keep in mind, this is state of Oregon officials saying this. It's not me. But they just said, look, nobody should ever change the landscape preserved at a park. We don't see any silver lining in their actions. That said, now that it's gone, there is less temptation to hop the fence and go into a dangerous area to get that picture you saw online. That's just an honest reality. So again, that's the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department certainly not excusing these actions but look i mean cape kawanda is about as complicated as it gets when you're talking about modern crowding public lands internet culture it just all collided in this one small spot in pacific city all right well it's hard to believe we've made it this far in the podcast without the wonderful tale of a daredevil who took a canoe off 177-foot South Falls at what is now Silver Falls State Park. Here's park ranger Matt Palmquist telling the story. And fun fact, this was actually part of the first episode of the Explore Oregon podcast that we ever published. It seems like such a long time ago.
1: All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up with one last crazy story about Silver Falls. Let's finish with the story of a daredevil, his canoe, and one very large waterfall.
0: All right, so this is probably my favorite story about Silver Falls. So remember South Falls. We've talked about it a lot. Big, powerful waterfall, 177 feet tall. One of the questions people often ask about it is, has anybody ever taken a boat off it? And the answer is yes. Yes, indeed. Back in the wild early days, before it was a park, a man named Al Fawcett did make that attempt. I'll let Ranger Matt tell the story.
2: And he was a logger and a daredevil. So he had gone over numerous waterfalls that were a lot smaller waterfalls. And then he decided in 1928 that he wanted to go over South Falls in this boat. He had this uh, this long 12 foot long boat and inside it he stuffed it with 36 car inner tubes. The crowds showed up there were between 3,000 and 4,000 people that, that showed up to watch him. And uh, he got in his boat, and this was July 1st, 1928, so the, the water in the creek was pretty low. They had put in a temporary dam to help uh, block up some water, and when he was ready to go over the waterfall, they released all this water that carried him over the edge. But about, uh, about 20 feet down, uh, the, his boat hit a splice in this cable that was guiding him down, and the cable broke. And his boat fell 150 feet and landed in a belly flop on the pool below. There, everyone was really, really worried. It was quite a tense atmosphere in the uh, audience there. Um, but his guys ran down, and uh, he climbed out of the boat. He had broken both of his ankles and a bunch of his ribs, but he had survived his, his plunge over the waterfall. Uh, but while he was in the hospital, he was in Silverton in the hospital for about two weeks, and his business partner, who had been collecting all of the money from the spectators skip town with with all the proceeds and alfasa didn't make a dime
0: all right we're going to take a minute to hear from our sponsors when we return we'll have a story about a disabled snowmobiler who had a big impact on oregon's winter recreation we'll hear about a princess turned to stone and about a grove of redwoods saved by a newspaper story that's when we return
1: I'm Sarah Gaffori with American
0: Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. I moved to Oregon because of my love for the outdoors. It also inspired me to go to law school and pursue a career in environmental law. At AFRC, I have the pleasure of advocating for science-based forest management throughout the West. Protecting our public lands helps achieve important conservation goals, including clean air, clean water, and robust wildlife habitat. It also helps provide renewable, climate-friendly wood products that we all depend on. We strongly believe that active management of our public lands is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for our future. Learn more about AFRC at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The last two years have been tough on the beaches and trails of the Tillamook Coast. With more people flocking to the area in search of outdoor activities, comes a spike in the appearance of trash along roads, trails, and beaches. Be part of the solution and make a point at helping curb this problem. Dispose of your trash and designated receptacles and practice leave-no-trace visitation. Make it a habit to bring a trash bag along in your hike or beach walk and pick up at least three pieces of trash along your way. It may seem like a drop in the bucket, but every little bit makes a difference. Learn more about how you can help by visiting www.tillamuckcoast.com and downloading the Tillamook Coast Pledge. You can help preserve the legacy of beautiful trails and beaches for generations to come. All right, welcome back. So if you love winter recreation, there is no doubt you've taken advantage of Oregon's numerous snow parks, those places that are plowed out along highways in the winter and then become access points for cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, and snowmobiling, and most most recently, even dog sledding and fat tire biking in the snow. So these, these snow parks do a lot. The story behind the entire idea of a snow park in Oregon though was actually inspired by a fight between a disabled snowmobiler from Salem and one of the state's most famous politicians. So here is that tale. Right, so I've been writing a collection of stories about rediscovering cross-country skiing, primarily at Ray Benson, but I never knew who that name referred to or what Ray Benson the man actually did to become the namesake of the snow park. And the answer turned out to be a lot more interesting than I ever could have expected. So the story actually begins in the early 1970s with one of Oregon's legendary politicians, Norma Paulus. She was a trailblazing Republican in Oregon who was also one of the state's early environmental champions. In our last episode about Tillamook County, we referenced the fact that there was almost a nuclear power plant built at Cape Kowanda on the Oregon coast. Well, Paulus was one of the big reasons it never happened. She recently passed away, but was a giant in Oregon politics and left behind a big legacy. But in the early 1970s, Paulus introduced legislation to either ban or severely limit the use of snowmobiles in the backcountry and in general across Oregon. In response, a group of folks that loved snowmobiling, which was still kind of a new thing in the 1960s and 70s, they met up in Salem at a place called Benson's Automatic Transmission Specialties to play in opposition to these bills. The owner of that establishment was, of course, Ray Benson himself. I just talked to his son, Gene, on the phone the other day, and he told me that his dad was an amputee um, and eventually lost both of his legs due to diabetes. But he was still a very energetic, adventurous guy and had really fallen in love with snowmobiling because it was the one way he could still get out into the forest and explore around in winter and, you know, experience that. To fight Paulus' bill, the group met and formed the Mount Jefferson Snowmobile Club, and many of them would also play roles in the larger Oregon State Snowmobile Association. And they were successful in defeating the bills to limit snowmobiling multiple times throughout the 1970s, in fact. But in those days, it was still pretty difficult to get a snowmobile into the backcountry. Basically, guys would just park their trailers alongside the highways in places where people put chains on their cars, Not the best thing in the world. So they actually initiated the idea of the snow park concept that exists today. So where the Oregon Department of Transportation plows out parking areas and you support it by buying a snow park pass. They originated this idea and really pushed for it. While they're in the process of building one of these first snow parks with these new funds in 1976 and 77, Ray Benson tragically passed away. But because of all of his work on the issue, they named that snow park for him. Over the years, the mission of snow parks has greatly expanded, and there's no better place to see it in action than at Ray Benson. It's still a big snowmobile destination, but now it has fantastic ski and snowshoe trails as well. And Gene Benson, his son, said his dad would be thrilled with how many people come up there and enjoy that area. The Mount Jefferson Snowmobile Club still does a lot of the work up there. They actually built and installed the warming hut in the parking lot right now themselves, They groomed snowmobile trails up there, and they pushed to expand the parking lot in the 1990s. Historically, there was some friction between snowmobilers and the skiers that later showed up, but over the years, groups like the Willamette Chapter of the Oregon Nordic Club um, established the North and South Loops so that each group has its own pathways. The snowmobilers kind of have their network of trails. The skiers and snowshoers have their network of trails, And everybody gets along. You know, the two groups built some of the warming huts together. And that's made a big difference in helping these two, you know, fairly different styles of recreation coexist in this one place. So it's pretty wild to think that from this humble, interesting beginning, the snow park idea has spawned an entire network across the state that supports everything from sledding with kids to skiing to snowmobiling, even dog sledding in some places. Snow parks are a cool part of Oregon winter, and people like Ray Benson are the ones we have to thank for getting it started.
1: Yeah, it's hard to kind of imagine, you know, heading out into the wilderness in the in the winter without them.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I am sort of curious. Like, without this, I wonder what would have eventually developed. I mean, all you had was, you know, big ski resorts.
1: Yeah, commercial, you know, commercial destinations. And
0: those they're so much more expensive than, you know, snow parks. They're 25 bucks a year, and you get access to this tons and tons of terrain that you wouldn't have otherwise
1: it seems like the perfect oregon solution Yeah.
0: all right from the snows of the oregon mountains to the forests of the coast let's go next to the story of a grove of old growth redwoods on oregon soil that were planned to be logged in the 1980s But at the last minutes, that that logging plan was canceled uh, after a newspaper story in the Eugene Register Guard.
1: All right. And the second place is a little more remote. It has kind of an interesting backstory. Of course, there really wasn't always a guarantee that it was going to be a place that people could visit, right? Yeah, so
0: This is Oregon Redwood Trail. And it's located in a little bit more of a remote area southeast of Brookings. So we're still on Oregon soil. The story of how the trail actually came to be is an interesting one, and it started in 1988 when the U.S. Forest Service actually offered a timber sale to cut it. So they would have cut 300 of the last old-growth redwoods on Oregon soil, and it would have resulted in a ton of timber, 300 million board feet. The thing is, most old-growth redwood at that point, I mean, people had stopped logging it. We'd gotten to this point where there was so little left, people were kind of like, yeah, we should probably maintain what we've got. So there was a story about in the the Register Guard, and there was outrage. Like, people were really upset that we were going to cut these redwoods on Oregon soil. A ton of phone calls came into politicians, and they successfully killed the sale. The interesting thing was they'd already cut a surveyor line for the timber sale, so now they had this cut through this redwood grove, and they're like, what should we do with it? And so that became the Oregon Redwood Trail. It's this place that was once going to be logged, Now it's a trail. Okay, we're going to wrap up our favorite stories with a tale of a princess turned to stone and on the more modern end, a story of a sand artist who's become an Oregon phenomenon all on the Bandon Beach on Oregon's south coast.
1: All right, let's jump into it. Let's start out on the town's beach, one of Oregon's most beautiful patches of sand.
0: Okay, so there is a number of places you can access the Bandon Beach. But my favorite route starts at a long wooden staircase at Coquille Point and then heads down to a beach packed with sea stacks and islands right off the shore. Kids are going to have a blast looking for the barnacles and mussels on the big beach rocks and just kind of poking around. At low tide, you can hike all the way, about one mile, to another wooden staircase at Face Rock State Scenic Viewpoint. So that makes for a pretty good family one-way hike two miles out and back. Now as you're heading up the stairs at Face Rock, make sure to look out into the ocean and you will see a large rock with a face that appears to be staring out at the sky. That, as the legend goes, is a beautiful princess.
1: So the legend goes that a visiting Native American chief, Chief Siskiu from the Inland Mountains, brought his daughter with her dog and cat with kittens to a potlatch by the ocean at this site. It was a huge celebration. All the chiefs from the area were in attendance, a ton of abundance. They were cooking a bunch of food, huge shindig. But Chief Siskiu's daughter had never seen the ocean before and was so enchanted by the sea that she swam out, ignoring warnings about an evil spirit who lived there. The spirit captured her, threw her pets into the sea when they tried to rescue her and tried to make the young princess look into his eyes she refused to do so instead staring at the moon in the sky in time they all turned to stone now when you look out from the beach you can pretty clearly see the princess on face rock looking up at the moon and then you can see her dog cat and kittens and the smaller rock formations just off to the north side
0: Yeah, you know, Face Rock is one of the most recognizable landmarks on the South Coast. You know, it's just a beautiful spot in general, but it's also become well known for a new reason. And that's because April through August, it becomes the site of a very cool event called Circles in the Sand. It's a little hard to describe without a picture, but basically a group of artists get together and create an intricate labyrinth designs on the beach. From above, they look a little bit like highly artistic crop circles, and they are the brainchild of artist Denny Dyke, who's been creating this this sand art since 2011. A fun part is that once the artists finish creating these labyrinth maze artworks, the public's allowed to walk on them. You'll see people following these fun, funky pathways on weekends, and usually a Thursday or Friday. It's pretty fun and has become increasingly popular. Here's some audio I took on a visit last year.
3: Hi, I'm Denny Dyke from Circles in the Sand, and I've been drawing on the beach now since 2011. 2015, I took the project full-time. We draw 40 to 60 days a year for the public. I have a team of five uh, drawing people with me and another six or seven ambassadors that help us, and all the grooming is done by volunteers we are here to celebrate love joy peace harmony and spread as much community love as we can what inspired you to do it in in the first place actually i was never an artist before i started this project i started it because uh, i used labyrinth as a meditation tool for years and so i started drawing for myself originally uh when i first started drawing people uh, would walk around the pieces of work i was called the alien i was called the crop circle guy uh, for several years uh, but now as you can see they all come down and enjoy the walk for us last summer we averaged about 400 people a day.
0: did you ever expect it to become such a I mean it's a it's a tourist attraction now on par with anything in
3: Bandon It's uh, really taking a life of its own now and I had no uh, outcome in mind and I still don't. Uh, my team and I come down here, everything's improv, we don't pre-plan anything. Okay, so
0: is it a, so you pick a theme and then do you come up with, you know, sort of interpretations on it? Like Actually,
3: Most of the themes are, we've got ocean, we use celestial, we have a zen theme where everything's just nice and smooth, uh, and then bottom line is when they get out there, whatever they put in the sand, like I said, uh, but that's just an indicator, let's focus on hearts, let's focus on love or whatever.
0: What's the process? You mark it in the morning, and then draw to, tell, to bring me from the be- morning into okay, the afternoon can, when people are walking well, around.
3: Uh, we got on the sand here about eight o'clock this morning. Uh, we look at it from uh, up on top and uh, decide where we're going to draw, and uh, then we come down here. There's five of us when we start, and uh, basically we put in our dedication circle and an entrance and an exit. And then James goes to one end, I go to the other, and we start drawing. We'll leave the circles for the sand artists to do what they need to do. And then the groomers come in and groom it all up and make us look good. Yeah, I I see the
0: public is is walking through it right now. Are they walking like a, uh, it's almost a a maze or?
3: Well, it's a a labyrinth. It's a single path, no dead ends, no wrong turns. Uh, This particular one should be about a half mile long. And as you'll notice, everybody's just enjoying the nice even walk. And uh, especially with everything going on in today's world, we need that time to just settle down, be with ourselves and in the environment.
1: If you visit the Circles in the Sand website or Facebook page, you can find photos of the sand art along with a schedule of when the events take place. Normally, the artists start drawing pretty early in the morning, and then people are allowed to walk the maze sometime between 8 and 10 a.m. All right, well,
0: that's about all the time we've got for Volume 1 of our favorite stories from the past 70 episodes of the Explore Oregon podcast. But you're going to want to come back for Volume 2, when we'll hit on stories such as why Hood River was once known as Dog River. And spoiler alert, it's a little dark. Then we'll talk about one of Oregon's largest drug busts, A Mountain of Pirate Treasure a ghost wagon, a cat getting launched over a famous Oregon waterfall, and two of the most incredible groves of trees in the world. So we'll see you back here for that episode. If you want to listen to full versions of any Explore Oregon podcast, you can always sign on to statesmanjournal.com explore, or just subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify to find our entire back archive of episodes. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. For our environment, for our economy, and for the future, learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's TillamookCoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.